All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. Welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Patterson, and with me today is the ever good-looking Marty Frederick. Marty, how you doing, dude? Josh, today is a day I have been waiting for for just about over a year. Yeah, what is that? My kids went back to school for the entire day. <laughs> nice. <laughs> they are gone. <laughs> For the whole day. And then tomorrow, they'll be gone for the whole day. And the rest of the week, they'll be gone for the whole day. And like, now, I don't want to make any, I don't want to give any misconceptions. I love my kids. I love my kids. But I love my kids at like four in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> because from four until eight or so, um, they, our, our guest doesn't know this. Josh does, though. But my kids have her high energy. That's just kind of what we'll I'll call them. And so there's only so much time <laughs> I can give to them. And I love them, but like throughout the throughout the pandemic, being have them being home all day and being home with them all day and everyone being in the house all day long after a while, it just it got to be very overwhelming. Um like even like even like going outside and playing, like they were they got tired of that. And so you like mm. you were kind of like, oh well now what are we supposed to do? So Today's a day that I've been looking forward to for a while because um, they're back in school. Yeah, well, there you go. But so one thing that's sad about that, though, is I've been enjoying uh, how sometimes Killian sneaks in <laughs> onto screen and will give you a hug yeah. because he knows he's not supposed to come into the room. So he'll come in and be, be cute and give you a hug yeah. and then peace out. And yeah. listeners never get to see that because we don't acknowledge it, yeah. and, you know, since we're audio only. But uh Actually, when we talked to propaganda, he gave Killian a shout out. He did, but Killian doesn't <laughs> know. He, he couldn't hear. He said, "He said, what a big homie is what yeah. he said." Yeah. But Killian <laughs> didn't know. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, he's a cool. I mean, yeah, it's so. Unfortunately, that will be gone from our podcasts for the next month and a half. But then summer comes. There you go. And then they're they're home again, and you'll so, get Killian hugs during podcasting. Maybe one time we should invite the kids into the podcast. That'd be fun. Just as like a brief beginning of the podcast and like, we'll tell the guest ahead of time, like, hey, there's something we're going to do just for the heck of it. And I don't know, maybe that'd be fun. Can I ask them like, hey, guys, what's your favorite swear word that mommy and daddy don't let you say? Just, you know, I you think can't ask be... them that. You can. <laughs> 
they'll probably say like poop or something oh yeah there like, you go <laughs> and then i'll be like well you're getting a spank now i'm kidding yeah <laughs> cool yeah marty i'll share one thing with you real quick and then then we'll jump in i'm super excited for our conversation today mm-hmm. um but today is also kind of a, a milestone for me as well it's my last monday at the church that i work at mm. i resigned my position last uh well, almost two weeks ago, so sometime last week or maybe the week before, um, and I'm stepping into a whole new world, which I'm really excited a about. Whole new world. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help myself. There you go. <laughs> there you go. But yeah, so um, yeah, it was, uh, I mean, we've talked about it on here before, but we, you know, it's been a, a conversation I've been having for many a months now. I mean, pre-COVID, so this isn't like a, you know, Josh got bored during COVID and and quit working in a church kind mm-hmm. of thing, but it's been going on for a while. Um, I'm confident in the decision. I'm at peace with it. My mental health has been fantastic. <laughs> so that's good. Uh, but yeah, dude, I'm going to be a taproom shift supervisor at a brewery here in Maryland. And then I'm also hanging out part-time at a, another brewery right down the street from my house here in Baltimore. And so that's pretty cool. That's um, awesome. Yeah, but we're going to keep doing this. I'm still doing uh, my work with Jesus collective. Um, Actually, we're working on like two pretty big writing projects right now. And they just asked me if I would uh, be the editorial coordinator for that. So that's pretty cool. Um, and I get to write with some of, you know, our past guests like Greg Boyd and, and Bruxy Cavey and, and Megan mm-hmm. Good, some really cool people. So I'm excited about that. Nice. Um, well, it's like yeah. you're stepping. It's like some people would say, well, you're stepping out of ministry. But actually what you're doing is you're stepping out of one ministry into a different ministry because now you still get to minister, but you don't necessarily have to have the pressure of, you know, being the minister. Yeah. Just it's awesome. <laughs> it's kind of in friendship and relationship with people, which is like, not that you weren't before, but like this that sure. becomes the reason instead yeah. of it being your job, it becomes that you get to minister based on relationship. Yeah. in a completely totally selfish way it, there's so much pressure off my shoulders. And like, sometimes I, I just feel that the, uh, the, the title that I carried pastor can drive a wedge in relationships, even unintentionally, even if you do your best to be as relational and authentic as you can, people still hear pastor and they have these ideas. But like, if you're pouring a beer for somebody, then every, all cards are on the table. <laughs> so yeah. that's pretty cool. Yeah, man. Well, proud of you. Yeah. Well, thanks dude. But let's, proud uh, courage. Yeah, let thank you. Let's uh let's invite our guest into this conversation though, because I'm excited for this man. And also, I think I told you this, Marty, but Baltimore is a really near and dear place to her heart, and so that's pretty cool. So nice. she's gonna she's gonna flex on you because Baltimore is awesome, and that's <laughs> where I'm at. So with us today is Diana Butler Bass. Diana, how are you? I'm doing well. We're uh, we're. We're recording on Easter Monday, and I'm thinking about this this particular year as uh, the day after God freed Jesus. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I was really taken yesterday by you know all the imagery about the the tomb open, the rock rolled away, and all this sort of stuff. And I thought, hmm, well. I just wrote a book called Freeing Jesus, and it seems like this is a really old part of the tradition, letting yeah. Jesus out of the cage, as it were. Yeah. So, so it's a it's a pretty good day. I'm a little, a little tired. Um, actually went to church yesterday and prepared a nice big meal that my family had in the, our backyard. Um, wow. 
So it was a little closer to normal. Oh, and I'm double vaccinated now. I'm fully vaccinated. Nice. That happened on Good Friday. So nice. Uh, so I was a little sort of under it, you know, from that second vaccine um, on the weekend. But I feel I feel better today. So good. Yeah, I got yeah. my second one on Thursday, and it kicked my butt. I'm not even gonna lie to you. I was down for the count. <laughs> oh, some people really are. So yeah, it. Yeah, I haven't. <laughs> I haven't even been able to find vaccines within like four or five hours of me maybe i'm just like looking in the wrong place but looking on the illinois website of course there i live five minutes from the border of wisconsin and of course there's like been so many people that i know that live there that have been able to just walk in and get it uh but because i don't live or work in wisconsin i can't even though i'm closer to that than any of the ones in illinois that are available so but I'll figure it out. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not lamenting or giving up hope. But um, it's it's been a little bit of a chore. Um, but Diana, we have just a few, um, I guess, bio questions we want to ask you. This is sort of like the structured part of the interview. Sure. <laughs> we're talking about. Um, but just tell us a little bit. Who are you, and what do you do? Well. You know, I love it when people ask me that question, who are you? It's very existential, you know, <laughs> um, the, the short version is that I'm 62. I'm a writer and a wife and a mother and a teacher. And so it's pretty simple, simple bio, but I also in my life, I've written a ton of memoir type things. Um, spiritual memoir is really the genre I think that I'll be best known for, at least I hope, um, after I'm no longer here, because I've, I've played with it. So when people say, who are you? It's like, have you read my books? You know, <laughs> that's, that's a lot of them. So, so um, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian and a person who cares very deeply uh, about the shape of faith in the time in which we live and how it's been both malformed and how it might also still hold some promise towards the most difficult issues that, that we deal with. So I think that's kind of me in a nutshell. Hmm. Well, thank you for sharing. And I, I would agree, as I read the book we're going to talk about today, there definitely is much more personal memoir style writing than many of the books we read for the podcast, um, which, you know, I was, I told Josh yesterday, if all the books read this way, I, I would have never, I would never have an issue to just read every book all the time, like at every second and just like read them multiple times. So <laughs> thank you for your writing. Um, the next question we have uh, is your favorite hockey team. Who's my favorite hockey team? Oh, this is going to get me in so much trouble with my Canadian friends because I have no idea. I don't I don't follow hockey. I don't know anything about hockey. It also gets me in trouble with my sister, who is a huge who is a huge hockey fan. Um, you could ask me about baseball. <laughs> sure, go for it. Yeah. Who's your favorite baseball team? Well, I grew up watching the Orioles and those were great days in the 1960s and early 1970s with the Orioles. Um, but uh, I live in Washington, D.C. now. And there so go. go Nats. Sweet. Well, so can I like deem you an honorary Washington Capitals fan for ice hockey then since you're in D.C.? Yes, you can. I Woo! was aware <laughs> that we do have a hockey team here and that they won. 
uh, mm-hmm. just a couple years ago. And uh, the main reason I know that is because they took that big old trophy, which I do know is called the Stanley Cup. Yep. And they, they paraded it all over Washington, D.C., took all kinds of pictures and video, posted them online. It was actually kind of fun. It was a uh, it was a uh, quite the thing. People people loved it. Yeah, that was Josh's big claim to fame because (laughs) I'm a Chicago Blackhawks fan and they had over the last, you know, 15 years, like three or four wins. Um, And so when we worked together, I would always I would wear my hat that said Stanley Cup champions and I'd say, you'll never you're never going to be able to buy one of these, Josh, (laughs) just kind of rubbing it in. And then finally they won. And so he was like, look. I got one. <laughs> and got they the were hat. the first team to do cake stands out of the Stanley Cup. And they, they actually dented the rim on it, so it had to be fixed. <laughs> so clearly caps. there was a reason why they didn't. <laughs> Go Caps. <laughs> well, it's, it's, um, I, I've often said I have, I have a lot of readers in Canada. And oh, cool. um, I've often said that... Uh, it's almost like my perfect country, gun control, universal health care, you know, all these great things that they have in Canada, except there's only one thing. I don't know anything about hockey. <laughs> and then they always look at me like, oh, you were so nice until right then, you know. <laughs> and they apologize to you for not. That's right. We're yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, we're sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so, Diana, one, one more thing that we like to ask is uh, what What's the most important aspect of your faith that you feel like you had to rethink? Oh, again, I mean, that's what so many of my books are about. I I do know, though, the most significant piece um, that I've had to rework is understanding fully that being a Christian is not about future bliss. It's not about going to heaven. It's about living here and now. And that sounds so deceptively simple, um, but that is really, I think, the hardest reimagining of faith that has to happen in, in certain kinds of circles in Western Christianity. And for me, it's taken decades to reorient myself uh, fully away from the idea that faith is about getting us to heaven. Instead, faith is about living um, here and now, which is a little discouraging since I'm 62. I probably have like, you know, two and a half decades left. And so it's like right when I finally get my brain around, it's about living now. I have less time <laughs> than I did when I was younger and when I wanted it to be all about heaven. And, um, you know, it, it's, I also think that I haven't lost the capacity to reimagine what uh, Christianity says about the state of our souls, our lives, our what have you, our bodies mm-hmm. um, in the future. Uh, but I, I really hold that very lightly and um, mysteriously, whereas every single day I learn something that's practical and pragmatic and challenging and beautiful um, about what it means to be alive now as a mm. Christian and figure out, you know, well, what do I do with this? So, so I haven't like rejected the idea of any kind of after this. Um, it's just that we don't know. 
And uh, what we do know, the here and now, is very, very, very full of sort of calling us to wake up every single day to the state of the earth, to the practices of injustice that surround us um, and to love, you know, just it's, it's a really hard thing to Mm. follow just the most, the simplest direction of Christianity, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, just that part, um, I think that everything comes together and yet that's the, in certain ways, the hardest thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. It's crazy how like, the simple, the things we write off as simple, and then we go through all these other stages of, you know, complexity and perplexity and, and unity. And then we return back to these simple things. And then you realize like, wow, this simple is actually the deepest and the most profound. It's like that, that beautiful pattern that just happens over and over and over again. Um, yeah. Well, Josh, you just described my new book. It's <laughs> basically the book I just read. <laughs> All right. Well, listeners, thanks for joining us. And (laughs) this has been another episode of Rethinking Faith. (laughs) Uh, Get the book. That's the, that's the narrative arc. (laughs) Oh yes. And it's seriously, it was a beautiful book guys that her new book is called freeing Jesus, rediscovering Jesus friend, teacher, savior, Lord way and presence. And it is fantastic. I was joking with her. Uh, prior to, you know, us starting recording here. And I told her it's my new favorite Jesus book, um, but not to tell Trip Fuller because, yeah, I don't want Trip to be sad. So Trip, if you're listening, sorry, but Diana's book is just beautiful. <laughs> Yours is still good too. Uh, but Diana's book, just, I loved it. Uh, I felt it on a such a deep level. Um, and so I'm excited uh, to talk about it today, but just for starters, probably a question you've been asked a, a million times, but uh, why did you write this book and who uh, did you have in mind when you're writing? Who's it for? In certain ways, this book was a really accidental book. Um, I wanted to write a book about belief and uh, the sort of impetus for writing a book about belief came out of a book that I wrote in 2012 called Christianity After Religion. And in that book, I proposed in the middle section of the book that in order for Christianity to thrive um, in the 21st century, or at least in the near part of the 21st century, because who knows what it'll be like at the end of the 21st century, that we needed to rearrange sort of the classic structure of Christianity as a religious tradition. And the classic structure of any religion is the idea that you believe something um, and then you you practice it, you have certain kinds of behaviors that are related to those beliefs, and then you join or you belong to a certain kind of church, communion, tradition, what have you, as a result of that. So believing, behaving, and belonging classic stuff, really religion class 101. Um, But what I had noticed in the early sort of aughts was, of course, the huge, what I realized was going to be a demographic tsunami that was going to hit Christianity really pretty soon about people leaving the faith and about religious pluralism in the United States. And while I was thinking through those demographic changes, it became clear to me 
that the old structure and the old order in which that structure existed wasn't going to work anymore. And so I wrote this book and I suggested, yes, we're going to still have believing, behaving and belonging, uh, but it's going to change up. Um, that the first step to a life of faith now is to belong. And to whom do we belong? How do we belong to one another? How do we belong to this world, et cetera? Those kinds of questions. Um, and those questions, not only did I present them in Christianity after religion, but I wrote about them in a book called Grounded. And then I wrote, um, th then I explored this category of behavior, which was, I've always been interested in Christian practice. That is, how do we make our faith uh, alive in the things that we do ethically and spiritually in the world. Um, ethical practices like hospitality and justice, devotional practices like prayer and meditation and uh, practicing beauty, all those kinds of things. And so, uh, in that, I, I was still thinking about that whole idea of Christian practice and realize that our practices don't emerge from what we believe, but they emerge from how we belong. So we begin to practice things like the things that people around us practice. So, you know, hey, if uh, I hang out with a bunch of guys who like hockey over the long time, the chances are really high that I'm going to actually become a person who likes hockey, knows a lot about hockey, goes to hockey games, so my, my practice would change because of my relationship with you. And so I wrote about that in a book called Grateful, because I think that gratitude is the most important human practice right now. It's the one we need the most to change the world. And so then finally, I mean, this is a long answer to your wonderful question. Um, I thought about belief. Okay, here I am. I've written about belonging. I've written about behaving. Now I got to write about belief. And I sort of sat there and I went, oh, what do I want to write about belief? And I, I came up with this idea of writing almost like a short doctrinal handbook. And I wanted to write, a, write it based around this idea of experiential faith, because so often people think of belief as a creed or dogma. And there's lots of books you can go read. And some of them, I mean, I really like, for example, Rowan Williams' book, Tokens of Trust, which is about the creeds. Um, you know, some of them are very good books. Uh, but I, I just, I, I, I live too much in the world, and I'm not a pastor. I'm, I'm a writer. Um, I live too much in the world to, to know that you can't walk up to somebody at the Starbucks and like say, oh, here's the Apostles' Creed. Believe this. You know, people would look at you like, are you nuts? You know, really, are you are you kidding me? Uh, that's not where you can start with anybody. And so, the for me, belief and experience are always so wrapped up together. And it's what we feel like we have encountered in our own lives that are the things that shift our beliefs. And and so I thought, well, that's what I'm going to do. I'll write a experiential doctrinal handbook. And I I thought. My publisher agreed. They said, that's a good idea. And so I sat down, I started writing it. And I thought, well, where am I going to start? And I, I, the Jesus chapter, I said, I'll start with Jesus because, hey, that's going to be the easiest one to write. And for an entire summer, I sat at my desk and I wrote about Jesus. And I think it was 80 pages long, 
before I realized that there was, I was not writing a book about a little doctrinal handbook. I was writing a book about Jesus. Um, and otherwise I, I would have had 80 pages of just one, one chapter about Jesus. And then I was writing the church dogmatics and I, I didn't want to do that. <laughs> so, so it became a book about Jesus. So it's, it's just one piece of what I think is a larger puzzle, and that is how do Christians um, reorient their faith in life-giving ways around our experiences of who God is, and this book in particular, the question who Jesus is. Hmm. Yeah, well, that that's awesome. I'm super glad that you ended up writing a book about Jesus. <laughs> Because one, so one thing that, that Marty and I are both pretty big on is this idea of like a, a Jesus-centered faith. Like we like to use a centered mm-hmm. set approach to theology, Jesus the center, but it, it begs this question of what Jesus are you talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one thing, one of the biggest things that I personally took away from your book is that this, this idea of rediscovering Jesus is not a one and done kind of thing, but is rather we rediscover Jesus throughout different seasons and, and, and times in our life. And it's like this ongoing uh, experiential to use your word uh, relational thing. And I don't know that that was really beautiful to me. So thank I you. Think, thank you for writing the Jesus book. <laughs> you're welcome. I, you know, people, a couple of people have asked me since I've just started doing podcasts and stuff on this, you know, what, what I most learned um, in writing the book and that, you nailed it right there, Josh. The thing that I learned is that it isn't one and done. And that writing about Jesus experientially in the way that I do in this book as an invitation for other people to think through their experience. um, I discovered that every time I thought I was done, I had basically just created a sort of a new box for Jesus to be in. And so, what I would have thought was a very freeing metaphor or a really, uh, you know, maturing set of beliefs. Oh, it's like, oh, I got it. I got it. I know who Jesus is now. I kind of moved towards the next phase of my life. And all of a sudden, I realized that whatever cage I put Jesus in, I've also put myself in a cage. And so I have to fight, really, this book is a lot about my own struggles and my own fighting uh, to find out who I am as much as it is to find out who Jesus is. And so it's that that sense of this being a almost a never-ending story of discovery, uh, limits, and rediscovery uh, that has really shaped my own life. And and so now, you know, I don't think that you get to the end of the book. And th- the end of the book actually has an open-ended quality, and that's very purposeful, because I have no idea. A- and uh, wh- who Jesus is going to be in another 10 years. <laughs> and I was uh, being interviewed by a group of, of women, among whom were there was an a old older nun, an N-U-N, not an N-O-N-E. And um, she uh, she said to me, oh, you're going to be really surprised. <laughs> she was like 84. And she just go, oh, it gets even better, she says. <laughs> so it's just like, okay, honey, bring it on, you know. <laughs> that's, 
That's great. Yeah, and, and you know, and Josh and I were kind of talking a little bit bef- before the the podcast, just just to be tongue in cheek and ask the question. You know, I mean, so obviously, Diana, isn't Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forevermore? What is there to rediscover about Jesus? And, and it, it kind of playing off the title of your book, but I think you kind of touched on that a little bit there. But do you have anything else you want to say about that? I mean, what what else is there to discover about Jesus? Well, it's hilarious because that verse is thrown at you so much, you know, in certain kinds of church settings. It's like, oh, don't, you know, this is the doctrine and it never changes. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, there's a real problem with that. Jesus might be, but we're not. And so, my most, you know, simple answer is we we don't know things. Uh, We have very limited understanding and even when you get to be that 84 year old nun uh, you're going to see a whole lot more clearly because you've lived a long time and someone like hers an incredible amount of time and reflection and and reading and prayer and you know self-discovery so so she she has a handle i think on that set on the ways in which jesus is the same yesterday today and forever um but it takes a really long time, I think, to to get there. And so I think that the misapprehension of people who use that verse to sort of stop people from questioning, that's always the way it was used against me. You know, don't ask more questions, you know, or or just, you know, don't doubt or have, you know, trust Jesus because he's always the same. Um, I think that, you know, what's, what's kind of happening there is that we that they think that the Jesus that you meet when you're 20 is the the full psalm person of the Jesus you're going to know when you're 84 and that takes the factor of human change and discovery out of the picture so so there's a very simple answer to that question Jesus might never change but the truth of the matter is that we do and then there's a much more complex theological answer, and that is theologically, I now lean toward a theology that is referred to as process theology. And uh, that's the idea that as we participate with God in the life of God, God actually does um, change. Um, and so that's a lot more technical and it might not be where a lot of other people are. So, but I think that my first answer actually fits, whether you're kind of a Southern Baptist, who's just sort of wondering about that verse yourself, um, or whether you're, you know, you hang around with, um, kind of over the top process theologians who use a lot of big words. Um, I think that the answer winds up being the same is that human experience somehow sharpens our experience of God and our experience of Jesus so that the Jesus we knew at one point in time doesn't always really resemble the Jesus we knew, we come to know um, by the end of our lives. And that might be the answer to the question about eternity, too, is that, you know, somehow we're going to die into that process and that we'll know Jesus then. As, as Paul says, um, 
the mirror will be gone. Oh. Uh, we now see through a mirror one day when we'll know Jesus fully face to face. And so that face to face encounter will take us beyond what we can even imagine now. Yeah. So, yeah. I hope wonderful. that's, I hope that's clear. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, at, at the beginning of your question, I was thinking, Oh, well, the answer is everything. Everything is left to rediscover, which of course, not everything is actually left to rediscover because there is some portion about Jesus that becomes absolute truth. Yeah. And, and we don't yeah. want to just leave it all up for debate. Um, but I think as we, I think the way you put it is beautiful as, you know, as we, as we move on through life, the Jesus that we knew at 20 is different at 30 and 50 and 70 and 103, you know, because of the experiences we've gone through, the people that we've met. I mean, I, before I met Josh, I was pretty sure about a lot of things theologically and pretty sure about a lot of things politically and um, experientially. And as I've conversed with Josh over the last four and a half, five years that I've known him, you know, it's Jesus has moved in me and changed me in ways. It's like, okay, well, I never really would have looked at it that way, but here's someone coming from a perspective that I never even experienced before. And now I get, instead of saying, well, now I have to rethink this or, well, man, like I really don't want to rethink this. So I'm just going to ignore it. But instead I get to rethink that I get to mm -hmm. interact with Jesus. I get to interact with the Holy spirit in a way that allows me to think differently about things. Um, so the way you put it was beautiful and that, <laughs> that, that was helpful. Um, I think what we wanted to do with your book and Josh and I kind of talked about this beforehand and with you as well, a lot of times with the episode, we come up with, you know, 10 to 15 very pointed and direct questions about the topic of the book. And we want to, you know, get to the heart of the matter. And I think the heart of the matter is actually found in just natural conversation around some of the chapters. We don't want to talk about all of them because we want people to buy your book and read your book and actually get into it. Um, but I think we wanted to really start with uh, rediscovering Jesus as friend. And um, I was I personally, and I know Josh did probably did too, um, really connected with the concept of people being against Jesus as friend. Um, I remember being at a church together with Josh, um, and um, I was told certain songs I wasn't allowed to lead as a worship pastor because they were just too, Jesus is my boyfriend. And so when you wrote that in that first chapter, that brought me back to those moments of sort of not being able to engage with Jesus is like a being in love with Jesus. That's not manly. Or that's, you know, men don't want to sing that. And so we're not going to do that. Um, and sort of being completely out of touch with this concept. So can you just talk to us a little bit about what it means to rediscover Jesus as friend? Part of the way that I wrote the book was to go back and actually think about my own life experience. And, and I, you know, I chopped my life up into uh, what you would think of as logical chunks before I was my earliest memories you know, before I was like in school, before I was five years old um, and then elementary school, adolescence, later teenage years, et cetera. So you can kind of, you can see that flow of time uh, in the structure of the book. And that meant that, you know, when I was writing this, I had to go back and think about what were my first memories of Jesus. And one of my very first memories of Jesus was sitting in a Sunday school class classroom 
at a church that's down the street from where Josh now lives in Baltimore, a Methodist church that you can walk to from his house. And um, in that Sunday school classroom, looking at my teacher, her name was Miss Jean. She was my favorite Sunday school teacher. And she held, she was telling us stories about Jesus. And in the, the midst of telling us stories about Jesus, she held up this picture. And it was a picture of Jesus. And all around Jesus were these little kids. And in the photograph, there is a small girl who has blonde hair because all Palestinian girls 2000 years ago had blonde hair. And she has her head just sort of leaning on Jesus' shoulder. And when I saw that little blonde girl who looked just like me, which also proves the power of representation in, in art and in Sunday school, uh, when I saw the little blonde girl who looked just like me, I, I just thought, there I am. I'm with Jesus and Jesus is my friend. And so that's really my first memory of Jesus. And, and that becomes the source of reflecting on these, these years of my life, which I have only very scattered memories of. Uh, memories of playing, memories of being in the woods, memories of changing, actually a lot of change in the city of Baltimore. And um, where Jesus showed up and, you know, how I used to put Jesus in my Barbie house uh, because I thought it was a better place for him to be, you know, the little, little statue of Jesus from the manger shows up in living in with Barbie and Ken because their suburban two story looked a lot more comfortable than the manger in the living room. And so, so there's this warm kind of childish almost quality to the writing in that chapter. And I intended that because I wanted people to remember how amazing it felt to have your first friend and to walk around the world and just know that there was one person or two people that you could really, really trust and you could play with. And for me, Jesus was one of those presences. And it often is the case with little kids that they'll have like a real friend or two, and then they'll have an invisible friend. And so for me, Jesus was like my invisible friend, um, except that there were statues of him and pictures of him and representations of him that I could lean into. And so this idea of Jesus as, as friend, I tell it in that voice, but then I move from that voice to saying, okay, well, what was, what did I really learn there? And what do I know now that relates to how I first knew Jesus? And I think that in some ways that chapter was the one that was the most joyful to write because I just went back to scripture and I retract what the tradition really says about friendship in the Bible. And lo and behold, the Bible has a lot to say about friendship with God. And it's the primary way that most of the really heroic figures in the Old Testament relate to God. They're called friends of God, Miriam, uh, uh, Moses, um, Abraham. God refers to all these people, the patriarchs and matriarchs of Israel, as, their fr as, as God's friends. And, I mean, that's stunning um, because gods in the ancient world didn't have friends, uh, gods in the ancient world had people who were subservient to the gods, um, who feared the gods, who, you know, lived 
giving obeisance to the gods so that the gods didn't destroy them. And here's the God of Israel saying, oh, hey, I really like you. Um, you're my friend. It's like, well, wait a second here. Is Israel the only place that has God as friend? And so that's a, a really incredible storyline uh, from the Hebrew scriptures. And then Jesus picks it up in the new testament and the calling of the disciples of course is a calling of a community of friends people who are learning together and they're living together and they're more than just a teacher and and students but there's this other quality in their relationship so much so that you get to the end of jesus own life in the way this beautiful piece of the gospel of John unfolds is that the Jesus friends are afraid that he's something bad's going to happen to, to Jesus because everything seems to be going wrong. And um, Jesus looks at them and says, yeah, things are about to change. You cannot go where, where I'm about to go. Um, but, but don't worry. Um, I'm, I, I love you. You love one another. And by the way, I call you friends. And I just can't even imagine what it must have been like to be those disciples, you know, who were gathered from the most ragged edges of, of ancient Israel society, you know, fishermen, tax collectors, uh, people with all kinds of dubious professions. And all of a sudden, here's this Jesus who is clearly a friend of God's, like Abraham and, and Moses was once upon a time. And then this, this, this Jesus turns around and says, you're my friends. And so friendship has a transitive property in this sense, um, is that you're fr my friends, you're also friends of God. And now they're no longer fishermen or tax collectors. Now they are like Abraham or Moses, they're like the patriarchs of Israel. They are friends of God. And so, so that, that whole journey of telling my own story of being, you know, three, four, five years old, and then to link it up with this incredible, um, you know, theological explosion uh, that occurred as I was writing this chapter and really understanding for the first time in my life um, the important and the centrality of the idea of friendship in both the Hebrew scriptures and in the gospels uh, was very powerful. So that's just, you know, that's the, just the first chapter. And you can see why all of a sudden I find myself writing 80 pages. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, you could write a single book literally on just the, the, the idea of friendship in, mm -hmm. in with Jesus. So, so I loved, I loved that chapter actually. Well, and I think as I was thinking, as listening to you talk now and reading the chapter yesterday, one of the things that stuck out to me combining those two things is, um, so I mentioned earlier, the place I worked before where we couldn't sing songs. So the, the big song that we couldn't sing was How He Loves, um, that that song was just completely out, wasn't allowed, wow. but we were allowed to sing the Israel Houghton song, Friend of God, and it, which literally just the chorus is I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. He calls me friend. That's the, that's the chorus. And what, what strikes me as I hear you talk now and comparing that to my experience is that um, even in the most hardened person's 
mindset of we can't sing about this or we can't talk about this. There is a longing to be a friend of God. Like it's, mm. it isn't missing from their, their makeup as a Christ follower. It's not a part of their story that they want to not have. It's just a part of their story that they aren't comfortable with yet, possibly, but they haven't, they haven't come to terms with the fact that being a friend of God is okay. And so they'll sing something that makes them feel good about that. But when it goes beyond friendship, they aren't sure what to do with that. So singing how he loves us, how he loves us over and over again, that's uncomfortable because it's, it starts being this thing of like, Oh, like, so I've been a part of traditions where it's not okay to talk about loving God or like, like, and like God loving us. It's sort of like, well, I mean, it's true. It, it is, it is a fact. We, we read about that in the scripture. We know that to be true, but it's a little too hokey. It's a little too feminine, I guess is what a lot of them would say. Unfortunately, uh, it's like the, well, that's, that's too feminine. We can't talk about, you know, about anything like that. But then I'm, I'm now a part of a, of a, of a church and a, in a faith tradition that I would say, um, almost welcomes that. I mean, it's almost as if that's, it's not the goal, but that's a big part of it. I mean, like, oh, God loves us. But we, we have to talk about that. We have to experience every much as possible. I don't want to be a part of a place where I'm not experiencing the love of God. In fact, I, <laughs> I want to seek that. I, I don't want to be in this like vengeful state all the time where I'm worried, like, oh no, like what's going to happen next? I just stepped on this bug. Oh, what's going to happen? Is God going to smite me because I killed part of his creation? And it's like all these different things you start thinking about. And sometimes it's better to just be able to rest in the, in the thought that God loves us and then he's our friend. And like you talked about in the book, playing across the street in the in the vacant lot, and uh, like playing under the tree, and it was almost like you're Eden in some ways. <laughs> and like um, that, just to me, that was the like the quintessential understanding of being a friend of God is that you were satisfied with His creation and His presence more than anything else. And I'm sure we'll get to presence if we get there, but. That just strikes me that, you know, we all want to be friends of God. N- none of us would say, I would, I, w- I would like to be God's enemy, um, or I don't want to talk about being friends, but I think we have to learn how to come to terms with the fact that that's just a fact of who he is. Hmm. I do think, that I, 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 I'm pretty sure that you're right in the arena why um, the church backed off of some of the talk about friendship with God. First of all, it seems infantile, you know? And um, so in order to talk about friendship with Jesus, we do have to go back to some pretty early ideas of what friendship is in in our experience. And so we have in our culture infantilized, infantilized um, friendship. It's for children. and I think on the other hand, I don't, I hint at this, but I don't really talk about it full bore in the book, but people who know me and know things I care about will recognize that this is certainly a between the lines theory is that the church, you know, church leadership through most of the centuries has been male and theology has been written primarily by men. Mm-hmm. And I think that the category of friendship just too easily slipped over into the to the possibility of love between men and i uh, so i think that the uh fear of homosexuality uh, has always accompanied 
the theology of friendship and made it very uncomfortable. You know, I, I mean, it isn't even until fairly recent decades that we've had a lot more uh, sermons and people willing to address the possibility, for example, of Jonathan and David having been a homo, a homosexual couple, a loving, loving couple with this kind of deep romantic maybe even sexual relationship. And so Jonathan and David, even in the most fundamentalist of churches, are presented as sort of the ultimate friends in the Old Testament. And then people sort of quickly turn away, you know, and say, oh, but that's the end of the story. They were only friends. And and we all know that that friendship does have that possibility of going from this kind of intimacy of the soul to intimacy of the body. And so that's the place where I think the church freaked out, you know, about pursuing this theological narrative um, any further. And so uh, in the back part of the book, of course, I do bring up the idea of Jesus's lover. Women were far less um sort of scared of that as a possibility. And so you get, especially in the writing of medieval women, uh, this huge uh, set of narratives about Jesus as actually their physical lover. Um, very, very erotic spiritual uh, writings. And that was the natural progression for them from Jesus's friend to Jesus's lover. And so, so I think that that's just there. It just, the, that the church had to turn friendship into something that it's not, you know, just for children on the playground is say, okay, well, that's fine. But, you know, let's leave it in the Sunday school classroom and don't sing songs about it because it's way too scary. You might be thinking the wrong thing. Um, is that, um, you know, it's, it's all wrapped up, I think, in the, the church's fear of, of bodies and sexuality. And so, so, so friendship had to be contained um, appropriately. And I think that in the new Testament, that that's just not there, you know, um, everything from seeing the beloved disciple whose head is laid against Jesus breast at the, you know, the last supper and uh, some of the, the, the really strange passages <laughs> <laughs> that there are about the closeness between the disciples and um, Mary Magdalene and Jesus, you know, really is a fascinating exploration of male and female friendship in the New Testament. So, so I think it's all there and Hey, it's great. You know, I think it's well worth the, us exploring at this moment in history. Yeah, absolutely. I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, especially for where, where Marty and I first work, I think, the homophobia thing was played hugely into that um, because there were other weird things that would be said that definitely that's where they were going with that. Uh, but I, I really loved this chapter too, just because for me, I had somewhat of a different experience. Like growing up, I was never like, you know, I, I still heard like the Jesus loves the little children and Jesus loves me, this I know, and this kind of stuff. Um, but also Jesus was always kind of used as like, uh, you know, don't do bad things because you'll make Jesus sad or like, don't do this because it'll make Jesus angry. So Jesus growing up for me was more of a parental figure than a friend. And it actually wasn't until later on in my life um, that Jesus's friend 
actually started to mean something because at first it was too kind of like idealistic, especially with, you know, the theology that had been given. Um, but part of what draws me to open and relational theology and also process thought as well, which is, you know, taking that, that realm further, um, is the idea of relate or relational experiential, you know, um, relationship with God, friendship with God. Um, and so our, our friend, like Curtis Holton wrote a book called the God who trusts, and he talks about the, the mutual relationship between us and God or us and Jesus and how, um, if one doesn't impact the other, then it's not real friendship. And you touched mm-hmm. on that in, in your chapter on friendship as well. Um, and I don't know that just, that I love that. That's, uh, really helpful. And, um, yeah, the, the friendship chapter was, was definitely one of my favorites, uh, for sure. But then, uh, another one of my, my favorite chapters, and actually I, I sent to Marty when I was reading, I was like, bro, wait, wait till you get to this chapter. It's awesome. Uh, was your chapter on, on Jesus as savior. Um, so just anecdotally for me personally, like the, when I hear savior, I automatically think atonement. Um, and like atonement is something that I think about all the time. Like I've gone through all the different theories, try to figure out my own theory. Like, you know, it's crazy. There's so much there. And so to ask the question, what does it mean that Jesus is savior? Um, was really interesting because for me, it was always relegated to, Oh, Jesus is your afterlife fire insurance policy. That's what it means that Jesus is savior. Um, but in your chapter, you open that up to so much more. Um, and I think it's super helpful because even among some of our listenership saying Jesus is savior could be somewhat um, almost uh, triggering because of some ways that it's been used, uh, you know, oppressively in the past. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. I just want to open it up. Jesus is savior. How can we think about that in a way that's not so uh, offensive? I don't know <laughs> the word for it. I think offensive is the right word um, because this is in certain ways, I think the cultural crux of the matter is one of the reasons why even people who remain Christians have a tough time talking about Jesus is because there's this sort of cultural assumption that Jesus is exactly like you said, there's a cultural Jesus and that Jesus is a Jesus who came and died for us and for our sins. And if we accept and believe in Jesus in our hearts um, and say some prayer around that, then we're going to be saved forever from hell and we're going to go to heaven. That's it. You know, that you can say it in three sentences. And um, it was hard for me to go back and reclaim that part of my own life because I had grown up in this world of this very gentle Jesus um, who was a, a friend and teacher. And, and really when you're talking about Jesus as parent, that would have, that did not occur to me at all. That was not something that was taught in my childhood church experience. Um, Jesus, my parents were my parents and my parents were going to punish me. Uh, but the idea that Jesus or even God was a, uh, a punishing parent was completely absent from my childhood world. And so good on the Methodists. I mean, <laughs> I mean honestly, um, uh, the world might be a better place if more people had grown up uh, with, with that vision of God that I did. Um, but um, so 
when I was uh, 14, my folks had moved from Maryland to Arizona and I first encountered this other Jesus, this, you know, this, this dying, saving Jesus. And for a whole bunch of crazy reasons at the time, um, I decided that I wanted to go to that church and I wanted to be with those, those people. I wanted to belong um, with it, with them. And that meant that I had to readjust my idea of Jesus. Uh, and I can remember at first they were, they, they kind of didn't know what to make of me because I clearly loved Jesus and I was all on board with Jesus. Um, but I didn't talk about Jesus like they did. And they, they wanted to make sure I was really saved. So they kept pressing me to say the words of this particular prayer, or I don't write about it in this book because I read, wrote about it in some other places. Um, they wanted me to get re-baptized um, because my infant baptism in the Methodist church wasn't good enough. Uh, and I, I wouldn't. And so that, that was never-ending distress for my friends in the Bible church. So, so, I, so I ran smack into this far more judgmental, bleeding Jesus, um, who was the fire insurance God. And, and I wanted to be honest, so I wrote about it. And then I have to reflect on, well, what was that all about for me? And this was the, the, the moment of aha in that chapter for me was that the problem with the fire insurance view of Jesus is that it's built on the assumption that everybody needs to be saved from the same thing. And so the assumption is that every human being is a wretched sinner from their, from their birth who deserves to be cast away from God and that we all need to be saved from that eternal fate of burning in the pit of hell because we are unworthy to even stand before God. And yet the word savior throughout the scriptures, again, we're talking here both in the Hebrews, Hebrew text and in the New Testament, it, it sometimes means something like that um, to be saved from some sort of really gruesome state and redeemed into some other kind of state. But it means a bunch of other things too. It means to be liberated. Like the Exodus is that God saves Israel from being slaves in Egypt. Um, it means to be freed from guilt. It doesn't necessarily mean that you are uh, taken, you know, and translated from a fiery pit of hell into heaven. But some people, the problem that they need to be saved from is that they are obsessively guilty about things. I was that way when I was a little girl. I think. I think I've always had some form of OCD and, you know, people just didn't know what it was when I was little and I've never been diagnosed with it, but it sure makes a whole lot of sense of my life. Um, and, and so anytime I did anything that was even just a little wrong, I, I would feel terribly, terribly, terribly guilt, guilty about it. And, um, it kept me actually from doing a lot of bad things <laughs> because I knew how horrible I'd feel on the other end if I, if I did bad stuff. And then of course there is the kind of, um, of salvation, the vision of salvation that to rescue someone. And that does not necessarily mean to be, you know, pulled out of hell and put into heaven, but it's literally a person who is endangered to be saved 
and protected um, by God's presence. And so, so the idea of salvation is multivalent, to use a big technical word. It has many meanings. It has all kinds of possible stuff attached to it. Liberation, rescue, protection, freed from guilt, redemption, and every one of those comes up again in the New Testament when um, either in the Gospels or in uh, the Epistles or even the Book of Revelation, uh, the work of the cross is being discussed. So, salvation does not mean one thing, and yet we treat it as if it does. So, what does it mean to think about Jesus as a Savior who literally rescues a wounded person from harm, who moves the, someone who has been violently abused into a place of real, true love, care, and trust for the very first time? That's salvation. It's salvation to be freed from guilt, to be lifted out of the, the, the pit of our own minds that sort of become a kind of a, a lock of OCD so that you can't ever move ahead because you've been so traumatized by some, something that someone told you once was a sin or was evil and you are completely stuck. So, what does it mean to become unstuck? Um, and so that's the, why I wrote, I mean, I wrote that chapter to tell my own story of encountering the Bible church Jesus, you know, for the first time. And yet the Bible church Jesus for me wasn't the surface narrative. It was something that, that, that Jesus as Savior was something different for me. And so I try to go beneath the layers of the Bible church Jesus and say, you know, why would that Jesus be attractive to a 14 or 15 year old girl um, in Scottsdale, Arizona? What was necessary? What kind of, how was I being saved? Uh, and then, uh, oh, I didn't even bring up the, the idea of salvation is this idea of being lost and found. And so when we have a sense of lostness, the idea that God finds us. That's that's a prominent theme in the Psalms about what salvation is. And so, so it's uh, salvation is not just a fire insurance policy. It's all these other things. And so, while I was writing the chapter, I actually felt like this makes sense to me. Now I understand 15-year-old Diana a lot better. And um, it also recalled me to this sort of beauty of the idea of uh, Jesus as Savior without Jesus having to be um, about just about fire insurance for the future. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. And it, um, I know Marty has one more thing he wants to, to ask you about before we wrap up, but I just I wanted to comment on this because it's just, it's so interesting. Like the, cause what I was given was the, you know, the Bible church salvation, Jesus. And um, just realizing like that salvation is so much more than that. And even asking the question, and and you said this in your book, but Jesus was saving people before he ever went to the cross. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, like when that kind of realization hit me, that was, that was a game changer. And um, just recognizing that, you know, salvation um, at least for me, salvation can also be talked about as like an awakening, um, an awakening to the reality um, and kind of, uh, yeah, like almost to like I'm working on an essay right now uh, for a project with with Tom Ord 
and I'm writing about um, salvation as participation with God um, and just these, these really cool things. And, and even just one more thing to throw in there. Uh, Andrew Sung Park is a, is a theologian that I've come to really love and respect. And um, he writes a lot about um, how oftentimes with salvation, we talk about people who sin and how they need saving, but we never talk about those who have been sinned against. Right. Um, and how they too, salvation is required there. So just this more holistic and, and beautiful understanding of what it means to have Jesus as Savior is uh, fantastic. And um, again, one of my favorite chapters. Well, of course, in that chapter, I do tell a story about me being more sinned against than sinner. And that's part of the reason why the Bible church, Jesus at 15, was was really appealing to me. And the 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 frame that you offered there... I think is probably the most helpful one when I retraced my own story to realize that Jesus was saving people before he died, um, before the cross. We have all these stories. And this is the whole reason why people followed Jesus. It's not because he promised them life after death. It's because Jesus was saving them then, saving them from illness, saving them from fear, saving them from all kinds of debilitating diseases, saving them from a sense of being oppressed by the, the, the Romans. And the reason why Jesus was killed is because he was saving people. It wasn't that he was killed so he would save people. He saved people, and the Romans got really angry about this, and they said, we got to stop this guy because he's offering a different way of salvation than what we, the Roman Empire, are offering. And so we got to get this guy out of the way because this is going to lead to a rebellion. This is going to lead to violence. Mm. <laughs> so what did they do? They committed violence to end what they thought would be violence against the empire. And yeah. so – so Jesus is killed because he's saving people. Jesus is not killed so he can save people. And yes. that to me, that I want that over the over the door of every church in America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The one sign that I want hanging yeah. up in everybody's uh, church. And not the um, American flag. <laughs> yes. Next to the American flag and the Bible flag or but whatever. That's, that's, but that's a separate conversation. <laughs> I guess that's a separate conversation. We don't have to get into uh, And just real quick before we get to the last part, there's a uh, the prayer that your mother prayed with you before bed. Um, just as a, a funny antidote, every time I read that and see that prayer now, I think of Tim Hawkins, the Christian comedian, um, who who talks about like, man, like what a what a scary thing to. <laughs> To instill into the mind of a child, but these are also the same people that like paint pictures of Noah's Ark on the wall, and it's like total flood destruction. Let's put this on our on the wall of our children. Like it's just it, if if you aren't familiar with Tim Hawkins, he's worth listening to on some of the like just just YouTube Tim Hawkins and the you know the the prayer with children or so because it's just hilarious um, and helps us to make light of some of the things that have been taken so seriously for so long. Um, but I think the last chapter with Josh and I wanted to talk about is way. <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> I remember as I read the book and I was reading through the beginning of this chapter, um, experiencing frustration uh, on your behalf um, for the conference that you were at 
um, where the person completely went against your wishes in the purpose and just being someone who's preached before and has asked for participation or when I was a youth pastor and asked for participation. And it's like a, you, you feel like what you're asking is simple, but it's like a, it's purposeful and like, it's just botched. And it's like, sometimes it was cause it was a student and they didn't quite understand what you were asking for, or maybe I didn't do a great job exp- explaining, but it seems like this was just like deliberate, um, and like, you know, righteous. And so like, I felt very frustrated for you in that, in that short brief period of time. I was like, oh man, come on. Like, oh, it was just simple, one simple request. Um, but Jesus's way, how do we re- rediscover Jesus's way? The, this, the shape of that chapter is that, yes, Jesus is the way, but boy, have we read the map wrong? <laughs> And so I am very honest in that chapter and it is clearly the most harrowing chapter in the book is that, you know, I've gotten through college. I'm mostly in graduate school in that chapter um, until the, until the very end. So I'm in seminary and then, then my PhD work. And what has happened is, you know, I'm idealistic. I'm all in this for Jesus. I'm like excited. I'm going to give my life into ministry and mission. And, and so I'm on my way and I go down this path and I discover that I'm on the wrong way. And that was really hard uh, because I had to make a choice once I realized that I had entered a way of sort of theological certainty and even personal relationships that were destructive, um, that they were not giving me life. And I was always so intellectually precocious that I could hear questions coming from a lot of different directions, even when I was trying to be really super faithful questions always intrude. Um, Maybe that's a little of the OCD thing questions get in my brain and I can't let go of them. And so, um, so there I was on this path of, you know, orthodoxy and reformed faith. And I'd fallen in with these sort of uh, neo-Calvinists. And now everybody knows about neo-Calvinists and sort of the hyper-reformed, but the people who lead those organizations and those churches, they were my classmates at Gordon-Conwell. They were my classmates in seminary. And so, we were sort of going down this, this road together when we were in our mid-20s to early 30s, and it was all very new. And so I kind of liked these guys. They were clear and they were intellectual and they, they were just, um, you know, they were kind of spiritually powerful. And sadly enough, as a young woman, one of the things that women in their 20s so frequently do, and this is not an excuse, it's just... Um, what the reality of, of women's psychology is at the time is that women who want to achieve in the world will often when they're in their mid to late twenties um, sort of hitch their wagon to very powerful and very successful men. And in effect, this is often the sort of the frame that can create a me too mo- moment um, is that, 
you find yourself in a room, you're a young, vulnerable woman with a lot of talent and you want to, you want to get ahead in the world and you know that men hold the power. And so the question is, what do you do? Well, some women give in in ways that they don't anticipate and um, men take advantage of that. Uh, powerful men take advantage of that with young women. And so in my case, it wasn't a story about a sexual kind of me too. It was really kind of an intellectual and spiritual me too, theological me too, is that they were on this road of this very rigid Calvinism and I wanted to succeed and they were powerful. And I thought uh, that's the way I'm going to go. Maybe I wanted to be protected. You know, maybe I thought that they could help keep me safe. And so I went on that journey and then I got on that journey and I went, oh my gosh, I don't want to be here. And it wasn't because they were particularly nasty to me or anything like that. It was just that I, you know, I think they were kind of nasty to me come to think of it actually. (laughs) Um, The main thing was, is that they told me I had to submit, you know, so it wasn't like an overt kind of, abuse. It was a theological kind of abuse where they were constantly sort of putting me in my place and reminding me that I was less than as a, as a woman. And um, that created an incredible amount of discomfort in my own life. And then the questions, the theological questions arose. So I had to go, I had to stop and I had to go on a different path. It was very hard I had to go and I had to retrace a whole bunch of steps. I had to break relationships with some people. Um, And there was this huge sort of moment in my own life. Well, it wasn't a moment. It probably lasted about three or so years when I kind of just stood in one place and tried to figure out how I could make the decision to really go a different way. And It was like being in Robert Frost's poem, you know, I came to this fork in the road, you know, and I just, I just stood there because I couldn't, I couldn't move. And so finally I moved and I went a different path. But I think that that has to be the sort of honesty when we look at our journeys is that sometimes we think we're following the way we are following a way and it appears to be right, but then you, you realize you're down a road, a really long di- distance that you never imagined yourself being on. And that's the moment when you have to turn around and go back. And for me, that road involved doing all kinds of things that I didn't really want to do. It was being really rude to girlfriends who wanted to be ordained and telling them that they couldn't be. It was... Um, I think that there were probably moments, I know that there were moments in which I was cruel to friends of mine who were gay um, because, you know, I thought that they were sinning, that they were evil, they were going to go to hell. Um, It meant embracing a kind of political conservatism that was not really my heart, but I thought that it was the necessity I thought it was necessary to be that kind of theological conservative if you were a certain kind of, a political conservative if you were a certain kind of theological conservative. And so that meant sort of closing my heart off to people who were poor and understanding 
the violence that certain kinds of systems and structures do uh, to people of color and people who are marginalized. And so it took a long time for all of that to, to shift. But I, I, I did, I found myself on this road and it was nothing like the, the friendly, idealistic, really loving Diana that I knew myself to be. And all of a sudden I was this pompous, full of myself, intellectual asshole and um, who judged everybody and found everyone wanting except for myself. And anytime I saw that I had sinned, I would just sort of blame it, you know, on the doctrine of original sin. I would just say, oh, well, yeah, Augustine said that, you know, that we all do these things that we don't really mean to do. And he got that from Paul. So it's, it's okay. I, I'm just living out of my sin nature. God loves me anyway. I'm one of the elect. And um, boy, that stuff is mean. Yeah. Yeah. That, and this, I mean, even as you're just talking, it, it, it sums up the journey that I've kind of been on uh, this path of, um, following Jesus and like being a pastor because I was told that's what I ought to do. And that's, you know, and I've, I've tried three times, first church shit show, second church shit show for a different reason. Third church. Mm -hmm. I'm finally in a healthy church that I, that serves the community. Well, that is multi-ethnic, super diverse. It's a beautiful church. Um, and it's still just not my thing. And so I've been on this, this path, this journey you're talking about. And it wasn't until I started having this experiential, like contemplative aspect of my faith that I started practicing and coming into like genuine relationship with Christ that then I was like, okay, now where I'm heading, uh, I feel like I'm following Jesus out of <laughs> the church. <laughs> Not that that's everybody's path to take. I think there are people who are called to serve and, and be pastors and that kind of stuff. I just think that's not the path for me. And, and this G yeah, I don't know. You, you hit the nail on the head. Like, yeah. like you do all the time. <laughs> but it's really interesting to me that even when you're, you know, so you're, you're way down the road, you're in the wrong place and you know, you have to turn around, you have to come back and you have to get on a different road. And, and how, that takes an enormous amount of psychological, spiritual, theological, personal energy. It can cause depression, all kinds of things. And um, so, so, that I, I think that that is part of that whole moment of realizing, okay, yeah, Jesus is the way, but I'm not following Jesus here. I'm following something else. So I, I can remember in those three or so years, one of my, my closer friends at the time, um, who was a, a confidant that I was kind of going through this with, uh, was someone that everybody knows really well now, um, Randall Balmer, who teaches at Dartmouth and has written tons and stuff about evangelicalism. And he grew up in a far more evangelical family than I did, um, you know, my liberal Methodist parents. And um, we were talking about this, you know, getting, getting onto a new path. And um, at the time, he, I think that he was, he appreciated that I kind of got on a new path faster than he did. And it's not because I'm better or anything than he is. It's, I had less baggage, I think. And he, and I remember we were sitting at some conference talking about this and he looked at, I said, well, what's keeping you from doing, from, from going this way? And he looked at me and he said, well, what if they're right? 
And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, that's the question. And you know, that question still actually haunts me today. There will be just some vague moment when I'm walking around the block in my neighborhood or, you know, reading a book that's that my old, 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 old friends would have disapproved of or, you know, talking with, you know, Trip Fuller about process theology. And this little like demonic voice will actually enter into my head and, and it'll say, what if they're right? You know, go back on the other path. <laughs> it's really terrible. And, and I kind of think back to that conversation with Randall all those years ago and have a, a much sort of deeper appreciation of how hard his struggle really was because he, unlike me, you know, those were the voices that he heard from his birth. And so for a person to make this kind of journey um, who was born into these kinds of traditions is uh, probably about a hundred times harder um, than, my, than the one that I had to make. And the one that I made was hard enough, as you now know from, from reading that chapter. And I don't want to talk about all the details of it because one, we should put a trigger warning on the episode and two, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to spoil the yeah. depth of yeah. the pain that emerges in the writing in that chapter. Yeah. Um, because I really want readers who get that to know that I've been there too and mm-hmm. um, not to feel alone. Mm. Yeah. I'd, I just wanted to say um, thank you for your transparency and your vulnerability in the last few minutes as you've been talking. I just, um, as a male that attended Gordon Conwell, but from 2012 to 2014. So not at the same time as you, um, uh, I feel that, you know, this, this almost this desire to apologize on behalf of others. And, and I, and I think that there, there's definitely, Josh and I were talking before you came on earlier. I think there's, there's a little bit, not with everybody. And I would say the people that I wound up really forming deep relationships with at Gordon Conwell over my time, actually most of which were women more than, than males. Um, but that just tends to be my personality. I tend being in, in, in a more, in being a more emotionally in touch human being, I tend to resonate more with other women first. Um, but I, I, I know that that wasn't my experience there. Um, but I would hate for that to have been the experience of the women that I spent time with. Um, while at Gordon Conwell to, to think about it was, it's almost as if there's like, I remember someone saying to me, I'm just really here because I'm excited that Billy Graham's name will be on my diploma. Mm-hmm. And I remember being like, Oh, like, well, what's, what's the big deal about that? Like, who cares? <laughs> but like some people like this was like, like that was almost the reason they went to Gordon Conwell because of the connection to Billy Graham and not that Billy Graham has, is terrible or bad or anything, to me, there starts to become the connections to other evangelical males, and I should say other evangelical white males, that it becomes, it's that style of Christianity starts to look the same everywhere you go, um, and it starts to feel the same. And those are the same people that say, well, Jesus really can't be your friend. Don't talk about that. Those are the same people that don't that understand Savior as to mean when I'm saved, I'll go to heaven. Those are the same people that see I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. And so they 
they like it's like they'll say i'm the way the truth and life and they say it as quickly as possible and then they emphasize except. certain words except <laughs> and through and and they and they make it so about that um but i just i really thank you for your vulnerability over the last few minutes like i could see and i could sense in you that there's that it's a that it's a place of like of emotional attachment to that and what that what that was a part of is, is of your story um and don't listen to that voice what if they're right who cares if they're right <laughs> because <laughs> i think finding jesus as the way and understanding jesus as savior and friend and teacher and lord and presence um and understanding jesus as jesus becomes so much more important than the intellectual rightness or the intellectual wrongness understanding him there's a book by a woman named adele albert calhoun uh, who's also a gordon conwell person um and it's it's just uh, it's called invitations from god and it's just this wonderful idea of just meeting god not through intellectual practice but instead through emotional connection and to me that's so much more about what life with jesus is about than any of the other stuff. I mean, you can know Jesus, what it says in the word. And you can say, well, I read Qumran and I read these other historical documents. And by the time I read all those things, here's who Jesus is. Now, what, who is Jesus to you and how does he fit into your life on a connected level? And I think that's missed too often. So I don't know. I, I thank you for this book um, because it helped me rediscover that in myself and um, as our uh, as our podcast friend Rob Bell says, we we uh, we we learn to see um, ourselves in someone else's story, um, and I think I did, and I'm pretty sure Josh did too in your story. So thank you so much for sharing this with us and for sharing with us today on the podcast. It's been wonderful hearing from you. And um, I guess the the last question we would have for you, Dinah, is is where can people find you and interact with you? Where would you like them to? find your book and how can people interact with you going for going forward? Um, I am all too easy to discover in this world of <laughs> online life. And that is uh, follow me on Twitter. Um, also, I have a website that lists all kinds of ways you can contact me, including direct contact. There's a contact form, fill it out, put your question in there. I try to answer all those questions as they come through. Um, I just signed up for Instagram and People are starting to follow over there. It's really weird. I have 50 some thousand followers on Twitter. And my daughter said to me just at Easter dinner, she said, mom, you only have 297 followers on Instagram. I said, you know what? I think I like Instagram better. <laughs> so, so I have those, you know, kinds of accounts. There's a Facebook account, but the really fun thing I've been doing this last year is um, I have a newsletter and it's platformed over on Substack, which is an interesting new, new platform, uh, creating some controversy in the world of journalism, but that's the way things go. And it's called The Cottage and it's just my newsletter. And you can sign up for it over on Substack or you can sign up on it on my website page. And I write about twice a week, sometimes only once a week. And it's about stuff stuff I'm thinking about, things from my books, things that I might be writing, uh, Bible verses that are kind of floating through my brain, political things. Uh, for uh, Holy Week, for example, I took the George Floyd trial 
And I looked at the, uh, well, he's not on trial. He was the one who was murdered. Derek Chauvin is on trial. Um, So I took the, the, the murder of George Floyd and I looked at all of the different witness accounts. And I realized that the witness accounts really sort of match up in certain ways to the stations of the cross um, for Holy Week. And so I told that story of George Floyd lying in the streets and the witness accounts as if it were the the stations of the cross. So that's the kind of thing I love doing, sort of taking a political social story and turning it all on its head, upside down, inside out, and relating it to it theologically in ways that people might never have thought of before. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, and listeners, for sure, go go out and buy yourself a copy of Freeing Jesus. You will not be disappointed. And that's yes. everywhere. Amazon, yes. Barnes & Noble. Go to your local independent bookstore and order it. Yes. Yes, it is. It is seriously. It is fantastic. And we barely even scratched the surface today. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's seriously, it's a, it's a wonderful book, Diana. Thank you so much for writing it. And uh, maybe someday our paths will cross here in Baltimore. That'd be a lot of fun. <laughs> you can look out your front window and see the elementary school where I went to I that can. I wrote about in the book. <laughs> <laughs> I can, yeah. I can, yeah. It was, it was so crazy when I was reading and you, it was like Hartford Road. And I was like, holy crap. <laughs> That's where I'm at. So sweet. Awesome. Well, thank you again. And uh, listeners, as always, thank you so much for, for hanging out with us today. And go Caps for me and Diana. <laughs> go Blackhawks and go White Sox. Boo. Oh. I was going to say, I'm back to the Nats again. Yeah, and the Nats, <laughs> and the Nats, yes. <laughs> Thanks, right. guys. Yes, peace and love. Okay.